Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, brother, it's uh, good to be back with you. We pre-recorded a couple episodes because we were at the Shepherds Conference, and so it's been about two weeks since we've recorded, and it uh, feel, feels like a lifetime. I really enjoy getting to see you every week. So, Yeah, it, it has been a while. Um, we, we almost even forgot how to get our stuff set up, our software, and things weren't working the way they used to, so we got off to a, a little bit of a delayed start here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, today we're going to pick up on um, a topic that we started, I think now maybe three episodes ago or so, um, on uh, on Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, what does Calvinism teach? What does Arminianism teach? Uh, why does it matter? Um, not not, yeah. not just to simply say one is right or wrong, but to kind of go through what they teach and talk about it biblically, right? Um, it, it's been a, the, the discussion has been around for a long time. Uh, it's still around and it still matters, right? Yeah, and it's not, um, it, these aren't the only two positions. So there are more than two positions. These are the ones that show up the most uh, dominantly, uh, the most frequently, I should say. And uh, these are the two that are often pitted um, against each other, often without understanding. And so the, the goal of these episodes as we go through it is to help shed some light on what it is that um, each framework teaches. And of course, a framework is useless unless it actually points to the Bible and, and reflects what the Bible teaches. And that's really our main concern here. Yeah. And so as we go through, just to kind of set this up, I'm, I mean, we briefly talked about Calvinism in that previous episode. Uh, we're going to kind of go through um, the five points of Calvinism. Uh, many guys will be familiar with the acrostic tulip and then the five pillars of Arminianism. And of course, the um, it, it, the, the five points of Calvinism was kind of solidified uh, in Dort in response to uh, Arminius and, and his teachings, right? And so, we're going to kind of go through those, talk about them, uh, talk about, yeah, just which ones are more biblical, why one maybe makes more sense and one doesn't, and ultimately what the ramifications of believing one or these other systems are. Yeah. But uh, before we get started, why don't you just briefly for us kind of um, tell us again, what what do we mean when we say Calvinism? Yeah, it doesn't mean that we follow Calvin. Um, it's, it doesn't mean that he's our spiritual leader. But we do believe that Calvin has essentially captured uh, with this kind of framework what we believe to be true, particularly as it relates to salvation. So, in uh, systematic theological terms, we would talk about soteriology. What do we believe about soteriology, which is the study of salvation? And how does God uh, affect that salvation through us? How does he work with us or how does he work on his own? And, and what part do we play? That's really what the discussion is about. And so when we talk about Calvinism, I, I know many people who will say that they were Calvinists before they even re realized that there was a name for it. And the main argument for that is you go through the scriptures and there are some scriptures that seem to be very clear on things like election, uh, predestination, and how God has to do all the work and man is depraved and those kinds of things. And so, a lot of people will read the scriptures and then later find out that there was a name for it. And so, they identify themselves as 
Calvinists, not because they want to say that they're following Calvin, but it's really a quick and easy way to be able to communicate with someone else what it is that you believe about soteriology. I'm not really big on labels. It's not something that I use very often, if at all, from the pulpit. And it's certainly not something that I bring up uh, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone because the focus should be on what does the Bible say, not what kind of labels do I identify with. But in theological circles, when I'm talking to others who are pastors or maybe theologians, that, that's when the framework is a little helpful so that you can kind of gain an understanding uh, immediately where someone stands by saying, I'm a five-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point Calvinist. As you mentioned, the acrostic uh, tulip represents five different points. And some people would say that they're four-point or three-and-a-half-point Calvinists or something like that. And some will say that they're, they are a full five. Yeah. Well, you know what you call a four-point Calvinist, right? What's that? An Arminian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and it, it's, it's a good point to make that we don't go around using these terms uh, just in our day-to-day life. By the way, life. that's a joke. That's a joke. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I hope people got that. Uh, yeah, that was a joke. Okay. Um, and I believe I first heard that by R.C. Sproul, nonetheless. So, yeah. um, but in any case, um, you know, we don't go around using those terms, but they can be helpful in certain settings. It, it's and, and I think just to put that in perspective, right, um, we don't also go around saying I'm a credo Baptist. Uh, you don't hear right. people going around saying I'm a premillennialist, I'm a partial preterist, I'm a millennialist, I'm a you know right. name X Y Z. Uh, they they can be helpful to shorten dialogue. You know, if mm-hmm. you're talking to other pastors or other guys who understand the theological terms. Um, obviously, in a podcast like this, we want to use the terms to help people understand what we're talking about. Um, you know, it's interesting. Before we get into it, the the thing that no one accuses anyone of if they believe in Arminian doctrine is uh, following uh, and, and being beholden to Jacob Arminius, Arminius right? Right, um, right. So you, you, you can't do one without doing the other. It would be an inconsistent uh, application. But anyway, uh, neither of those groups are worshiping either Arminius or right. Uh, Calvin, right? We just right. understand those are the guys who put the um, maybe clearest definitions around the particular yeah. doctrines. And so that, that should be pretty, I say it should be easily understood, but actually it, it seems to be a big contention, right? How often do we get accused of worshiping Calvin? Um, and, and so anyway, that should be helpful to understand. Well, let's jump in. Um, so you talked about what Calvinism is, you know, it really emphasizes, like you say, God's sovereignty, total depravity, uh, specifically around soteriology or the doctrines of salvation, right? Um, Specifically that it's, you know, by God's grace alone and, you know, and nothing else contributes to that. Arminianism, uh, so we hear a lot about John Calvin. um, So we're talking about Jacobus or Jacob Arminius, okay? Lots of folks don't even know uh, where the doctrines of uh, Arminianism come from. So, mm-hmm. around a similar time period, so in the, the mid to late 1500s, uh, I think he died sometime in the first decade or so of the 1600s, um, and his followers were known as remonstrants. So, mm-hmm. if you see that, that's, that's what that is. Uh, the Senate of Dort produced the five answers to the five points of Arminianism. So this is where we get TULIP. And by the way, it wasn't even in that order originally. 
Um, I, I think the U and the L were first, if I remember correctly. But in any case, uh, we sort of rearranged them to, uh, to make it easier understood. But let's get into some of those. Um, so what we'll do is we'll just kind of start with uh, the Calvinist point, uh, and then we'll go to um, the Arminian pillar, as it were, um, that it was an answer to. So let's just start with total depravity. So when we, uh, so you've got, well, let's just talk about TULIP, right? So the five points of Calvinism is not meant to, by the way, give an entire picture of all that uh, you would get if you were to read, you know, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, no. These are just answers to specific issues uh, in Arminianism. So you have the T, which is total depravity, the U, unconditional election, the L, limited atonement, the I, irresistible grace, and the P, the perseverance of the saints, right? Um, so let's start with total depravity. What is What do we understand by total depravity as Calvinists? Yeah, total depravity. I had mentioned that uh, this framework is mostly about soteriology, but when we talk about total depravity, we're getting into the area of anthropology and homardiology. Anthropology is the study of man, and uh, homardiology is the study of sin, and total depravity essentially communicates the fact that man is totally depraved in his nature. Now, that doesn't mean he's as bad as he possibly could be, but that he is, uh, he is, um, he is affected by the effects of sin all throughout his being. Um, he is totally depraved and unable to respond uh, to the to, to the callings of God, um, and that's it in a nutshell. But we often use that to describe the society around us. Romans chapter one, especially from verse eighteen to thirty-two, I think gives us a, a very detailed picture of what total depravity looks like were professing to be wise, they became fools, they denied God, they started to hand themselves over to their their sins, and God was actually handing them over to, to their sins, and they were giving into all kinds of uh, perverse uh, kinds of uh, behavior. But I think we see it throughout the Old Testament as well, you know, despite uh, God revealing himself to the nation of Israel, despite him delivering them from slavery out of Egypt, uh, giving them his law, um, giving them the promised land, sending them prophet after prophet after prophet, um, even delivering them out of the hands of their enemies on numerous occasions. What you get by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament is still uh, the same group of people that are continuing to rebel against God, despite having every external or earthly advantage um, to know him. And, and really what it points toward is the fact that we need a new heart. You know, we have a heart of stone that um, is set against God, that rejects God, and we need a new heart in order to be able to respond to the gospel. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And in other words, man is dead in his trespasses and sins, right? Mm-hmm. And when we talk about total depravity, is specifically um, in concerning what Calvinism would teach and, and believe is the fact that no one, because of this deadness, right, because of the hardness of the heart, because of this depravity, no one can of his own will come to Christ for salvation because salvation requires faith, which is a gift by God, right? It's not something you can conjure up. You're dead. Uh, You think of Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead men uh, cannot respond to external stimulus, right? Um, There has to be something that happens to them from outside of them. And so, that's what we would understand total depravity. So, what was total depravity? Um, 
confronting with Arminianism. So the, the first pillar, and they're often referred to as, uh, as pillars of Arminianism, would be not total depravity, but human ability or free yeah. will, uh, is what we often hear it, which is basically that mankind is under the dominion of sin, but uh, man can, of his own free will, still choose to cooperate, and this language is very important, cooperate with the prevenient grace that God offers all of mankind. So, they would teach that since the Bible says God desires none should perish, that it must then be possible for every man to be able to choose on his own accord of his own free will to respond or to reject the gospel. Yeah, yeah that's uh, prevenient grace is their way of um, getting around uh, the issues with total depravity because they can't just come out and say that uh, man has full ability to choose God at any time. What prevenient grace is, is at the time that they hear the gospel or they're presented with the truth, there is a window of time that God presents to that person where he gives that person um, the opportunity to respond and it assumes that the person has the ability to respond, but without that window of prevenient grace or prevenient grace, um, they won't respond or they cannot respond. Um, unfortunately, there is nowhere in the scriptures where grace is described uh, in such terms. So it really has to be kind of manufactured, if you will, based upon what they start off believing, which is, as you mentioned, free will or, or choice. And, and you know what, th this also, we have to Think carefully about the terms that we're, we're using and, and what do we mean by those words? Um, because as an example, I would argue that someone who is depraved, someone who doesn't know God, someone who has a heart of stone, willingly denies God. So I'd, it's not like there's this kind of um, straw man that's often portrayed where, where God is the one that's keeping people from choosing him, if you will. Um, I don't believe that's the case at all. I don't believe God holds people down or prevents them. I think that by their nature and, and by their own free will, they freely reject him and they freely reject him every single time. And that's how I would describe total depravity, um, whereas others would say that, no, that's not really a choice. They do have a choice. They can make the choice. But it's kind of like, you know, if, if you're someone who, um, who, who loves chocolates and, and you hate um, vegetables, right? If you're always given the choice between chocolate and vegetables, give, give that choice to a, a young boy that loves sweets, right? They're going to choose chocolates every single time, even though you've given them the choice. So, we, we want to be careful about what we mean when we say that, okay, Arminianism on the side of Arminianism is free will and on the side of, of Calvinism is, is total depravity, um, because we, we don't want to make the mistake of saying that man is prevented in his will, like as if he wants to choose God, but God is preventing him from choosing choosing God. That is not what the depravity of man teaches. Yeah, the issue is that man does not want to choose God ever, right, in his natural state. Right. And, and, and so, there are two issues with just this first pillar of Arminianism. One, you have the presupposition that man is basically not dead, right? He's not dead, no. and, and, and because he's not dead— fully, he then can, of his own accord, choose um, to, to receive Christ. And, and what's more important is that that language of cooperating with God's prevenient grace. And so, you really have two issues here. The moment we, uh, because if, if indeed you are choosing of your own accord, that becomes, one, a work in and of itself, and two, it means that you would actually be due boasting 
in part of your own salvation, uh, which both of those things are very counter-scriptural, right? Um, Works-based salvation makes the work of Christ, I mean, it it nullifies the work of Christ, right? It ignores the the, the true grace of God. And if you go to Ephesians 2, and I want to read this just on this point uh, to, to make sure we understand. So it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. I mean, notice the absolutes here. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then I think those next two words, that little phrase, probably the most glorious phrase in all of the Bible for the Christian is, but God. And that's the turning point, right? And so we were so dead and so following the world, identified as children of wrath, that we had to have something completely external, and that's but God. So God intervenes, and it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And so, and of course, then it goes on to talk about in verse nine, not as a result of works, but so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship creating Christ Jesus. So uh, I, there's so much there, but I think e- even just that one point destroys the Arminian argument biblically because you really cannot believe both of those. Um, and, and, and if you, if, if you just reason through those things, if you're able to cooperate with God, then it's no longer solely a work of God. You, you, we don't get to say, well, right. it's a gift and you're just receiving it. No, it is actually a work. You are doing something that comes from within your own self that God did not need to do that God did not do. Um, and you're cooperating with him. And that is the language Uh, of the doctrine there. But we see in scripture, I think pretty clearly that that's just not the case. Yeah. Ephesians two, as you mentioned, I think that is very clear because when you look at those first three verses and you were dead in your uh, transgressions and sins in in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air. And we too followed after the lust of our flesh and of the mind. We were by nature sons of disobedience, children of wrath. You look at those three verses. um, There is nothing commendable about God at all. And, and so when Paul says you were dead, it means that you were, you, you were dead, you were locked into that realm doing exactly what is described in verses two and three with no way out. Um, so that, that's, that's being dead. You're spiritually dead. You're not responding to the things of God. And when it says, but God, as you mentioned in verse four, um, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, um, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, that's the, at the start of verse five, it's reminding us that even while we were dead, God is the one that made us alive. Um, so to, to suggest that we could actually choose God would be very, very difficult, if not impossible to reconcile with that passage, because if we do have the ability to choose God, then spiritually, we weren't really dead. Yeah. Um, spiritually, we, we, we were actually, we could have at any time you know, fought through the sin in our in our life and in our world and following after the world and following after Satan and actually cry out to God and reach out to God and ask him to, to save us. 
but we don't see that at all. So it's a very one-sided picture. And I would add on top of that, when you go back to the Old Testament, when you look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, that's the promise of the heart of flesh that's going to replace the heart of stone. Mm -hmm. And and when you read through that passage, uh, that, that passage is first describing Israel in total rebellion against God. And then God ends up saying, but you know what, I'm going to act on account of my holy name, not because of you, not because you're coming to me, not because you're starting to do good, but on account of my holy name, I am going to act. I'm going to replace your heart. And when I replace your heart, then you will do the things that you couldn't do before, which was obey. And Jeremiah chapter 31, starting from 31 to 34, says a similar thing, talking about the new covenant. The new covenant is going to replace the old, and it's going to be different from the old. The the old, uh, they, they lost it. They couldn't keep it. But this new one, they're going to be able to keep. Well, why is that? Because in verse 33, it says, I will write my law on your heart. And that would be the reason why they would obey. And so while those passages talk specifically about God's promise to Israel, we know that the problem of sin and the depravity of man is universal, universal across all mankind. So the solution that God lays out for them in both Ezekiel and Jeremiah was had to be the solution that he would provide for everyone. To, to be saved. And I believe that is exactly what is described in Ephesians chapter 2. And then the verse 10, the very last part of that section, goes to show that the result of being saved, the re- result of being made new, is that now we are created for good works and we are now called to walk walk in them, those works that God has prepared from beforehand. Yeah. And if you back up uh, just two verses, I don't think I read eight, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith And then it goes on just to doubly make sure we understand who this is all coming from, right? For by grace, this is the grace that's previously been talked about, which is God's grace. You have been saved through faith. Faith is a gift of God, not of our own. And then it says, and that, that being these things, not of yourselves. In other words, it's not your own faith. It had to be given to you. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And the reason for all of that, the reason that you cannot cooperate with God in your salvation is just this, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And so one view would elevate God to his proper place and say, God receives the glory and does everything in totality concerning our salvation. The other would actually elevate man to a position of partnership with God. And that ought to be a bit frightening because then if that is true, we have to be able to say, if we're going to be consistent, that man deserves some share of the glory. And scripture makes that clear that, that that's not how that happens. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Now, let me say this as we go through. What, what I want to do, what we want to do is present the actual teachings of Arminianism. And I will be uh, the first to say that most people who are either against Calvinism or adhere to some uh, Arminian teachings would not fully agree with all of Arminianism. Um, it, you know, if, if people would recall on the previous uh, podcast, I made the comment that I think genuine Arminianism um, actually is heresy, and I do truly believe that. I don't believe you can, um, you can truly believe, understand, and believe what Arminius taught and it not be heresy, but I just don't think most people really believe that. I think they're ignorant of, of a lot of what he taught 
And they don't want to say that they're Calvinist, so they say they're Arminian, not really understanding that. Uh, so just to, you know, to be clear, um, because even just this one, if you truly believe, and again, I have never met anyone who would be willing to say, personally anyway, who would be willing to say, yes, I had a part to play in my own salvation. I've never, I've never personally met anyone willing to say that. If you really believe that, then you're not Christian. I just have never met anyone who truly believes that. Um, and, and so I think that's important to say as we go on, because I think we'll find a lot of these points, uh, if most people really considered them, they'll think, well, I maybe I believe part of that, but I, I'm not in agreement with, with that. Uh, no one believes, at least, you know, no one that I've met um, who isn't a Calvinist believes that they took part of their own salvation. They wouldn't communicate that. So I think there's just some disconnect, right? Yeah, and, and I would I would add this 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 point of total depravity. I, I think to me this is the most important point to understand the other points. Mm-hmm. If you get this point wrong, then you're probably going to get all the other points wrong. And often when people disagree with Calvinism, or they actually try to present Calvinism, and the reason why they don't like it, um, this is often the point that gets misrepresented um, because while people may say that they agree with the depravity of man, they may not take it as far as maybe I would take it or as I understand it, um, according to what I see in the scriptures. And, and the other thing, too, there is a popular notion that Calvinists are very prideful and, you know, they, you know because they're the chosen people, and so they automatically think they're better than everyone else. And, and I'm not going to deny that there are some out there who are overly prideful about it, um, but if you understand Calvinism, at least what it actually teaches and what we're talking about here, these five points, and you start with the depravity of man, the depravity of man should lead no one to being prideful, no one to being proud, no one to to thinking that they're better than someone else. Because basically what total depravity teaches is that you were worthless. And it was only because of the gracious choice of God and not because of anything having to do with you, you you as a person, your personality, your choices, none of that. It was God's gracious choice and God's gracious choice alone. Yeah. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul, who was a Calvinist before Calvin was born, um, <laughs> says in chapter four, when he's describing the worthy walk, the first thing he calls people to is humility and gentleness, right? Um, l- little joke there. Don't, you know, get too been out of shape. But um, b- but really, that that's very true. And, uh, and, and I think also, if we're going to be, if we're going to be honest, there are just as many people on the other side of the fence who are arrogant and proud and even just incredibly hateful. Um, why do we have people on both sides like that? Because of total depravity, um, yeah. you know, because we're sinful people. And so uh, I think if we're going to be honest. We, we can't just say only one side exhibits those things. That's unfortunate. Um, I would say, you know, regardless of, of, which of these positions you are you feel like you're more in line with if uh, your temperament is one of those kind of things just arrogant prideful and nasty it it is an issue of whether you're a calvinist or not it it might be an issue of whether you're a christian or not um yeah. you know and where you are in your your walk as a christian because no one should should be those kinds of things well let's get into the second one the second one um w- w- is unconditional election on the Calvinist side. You want to talk to us about that, brother? What do we mean by unconditional election? 
unconditional election. So election, that is the process that, uh, that, that God follows in order to elect those who would be saved. And the word unconditional means exactly that, that when he makes his choice, it's not on the basis of anything that we've done. It's not on any basis of merit on our part, um, but he chooses based upon his own compassion and mercy and nothing else. So we have no role in that election. Some of us are elect, some of us are not. And so it's unconditional. God is the one who chooses. And if for, for people that object to that kind of idea, again, I go back to total depravity and I ask the question, what is it that we deserved in the first place? All of us deserved judgment. All of us deserved uh, eternity in the lake of fire forever and ever. So if you want to talk fair, that's where, that's where that line of fairness starts. It starts there. And then from there, God on his own, um, on no basis of anything that we've done, shows who he was going to lift out of that. And we see a little bit of this today, like, for instance, presidents, before they get to the end of the term, they have the ability to pardon someone. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's no trial that's needed. There's no argument that's needed. They can choose someone who's in prison and give that person a pardon. And, and so it's similar to that, um, except God pardons mm-hmm. more than one person. You know, he, he chooses um, a whole bunch of people, and it's all based upon his own unconditional choice. And we're, we're going to come back to that. Um, so that's the Calvinistic view. The Arminian view is just exactly the opposite, conditional election, conditional election. So the Arminian view would teach that salvation involves both an act of God and an act of man. And so the sinner chooses God and therefore because, and again, the language is important, because the sinner chooses God, God then chooses the sinner. So God's choice is predicated on man's choice. And though God chose before the creation, um, and they would say that, um, those who he, he did so by choosing those who he foresaw would believe in Christ, right? So, yep. basically, wow. the ones who were predestined, as it were, were predestined based on God's foreknowledge of who would choose and who wouldn't. But God's entire saving ability is predicated first on man's choice, and so God is bound in this view by whether man chooses to believe in him or not. If man chooses to believe in God, God saves him. If man chooses not to believe in him, God cannot save him. And that's the view of conditional election. Yeah, when you think about God's election and man's choice, um, one of them has to take priority. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't put them on equal levels. And what happens with uh, Arminianism and based upon at least partially Romans 8, 28 through 30, where it talks about how those whom he foreknown, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called those he called, he justified those he justified, he glorified. Um, So the foreknown, that's the big question. What does that mean? Well, we would argue that foreknowledge just means that he knew you from before the foundation of the world. Um, and, and foreknowledge uh, means that he had a he knew you, he had a relationship with you, he chose to elect you. Um, the the flip side of that, or at least what Arminians would argue, is that foreknowledge meant they look he looked down the corridors of time, he saw what you're going to do in that moment. Yeah. Here's the main problem I would have with this doctrine: it's that if it really is based upon the choice of man, that man chooses and then God elects. Well, why is God's election? so emphasized in so many passages, if indeed God's election was actually conditional upon what man did. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about man making the choice and then God electing, then try to read through Ephesians and make make sense of that book with that in mind. Um, I don't think you can make sense out of that without 
without having to go through what I would call mental gymnastics to try to try to squeeze that in or, or make that work. So one has to take priority. And when I when I look at the, both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, again, go back to Ezekiel and the fact that God says, I'm going to make you a heart of flesh. Um, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, when Moses says, God is going to circumcise your heart. Um, go, go, go to Jeremiah 31, where he says, God's going to write his law on your heart. In none of those passages, is it ever contingent uh, upon Israel doing the right thing? God is the one that does it. And so when we see passages like Ephesians, uh, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And prior to that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And even when we were dead, he made us alive together again. It's very clear where the emphasis is. The other place is John chapter six. John chapter six starts out with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus presents himself as the bread of life. And, and though you have really close to 20,000 people following Jesus Christ, Jesus really doubles down on the truth that God must draw them in and the ones that God draws into him, he is going to save. And no one that, uh, that God draws in um, will, will fail to be saved, right? So he takes that from, he, he goes at it from both directions and he repeats it multiple times. And even at the end of the chapter, even at the end of the chapter, when Jesus looks at the disciples and says, well, what about you? You don't want to leave also, do you? And Peter has what we would consider to be a great Arminian statement. He says, Lord, um, wh where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe, and we believe. We have put our faith into you that you are the Holy One of Israel. So it sounds like a great confession from Peter, and you would think Jesus Christ would applaud him for that, but he doesn't. He actually rebukes him, and he says, did I not choose you first? So even though we see both realities that man has a responsibility yeah. to respond and God also is sovereign over whom he's going to save, we see both of those realities come head to head right in John chapter six. It's not one or the other, yeah. it's both, but what is preeminent, it's God's election. Yeah, and I think that's important. You know, when we look at all these passages together, we've got to do a little bit of thinking, a little bit of reasoning, right? Um, and and we've got to think through the theological consequences of the position we take. You you really do have to go to the very end and consider the implications of what you believe as a part of deciding whether it's consistent with the whole counsel of God or not. Um, you can't just stop halfway. So, for instance, I mean, as we're saying, right, if if God's, if God's election um, is, is dependent upon man's decision first, well, the very first implication of that is actually man's sovereignty above God. Yeah, right? that's right. And, and so we could just stop right there if we're, being if we're being honest, right? If we're being theologically honest and say, okay, well, that is an impossibility. And so we've got to throw that out because that just can't be true. And then, of course, we can go further and uh, the scriptures that you have brought up, we can talk about all of those things and, and we should. It's just totally inconsistent with everything we see. You, I, I mean, even just the language, and we understand the language in scripture is purposeful, um, the, the language in scripture is not haphazardly used. Hearts of stone, for instance, not partial flesh, not partial stone. Uh, the language of being dead, not almost dead, not barely living, uh, right? All those are indications that the person is totally and utterly inept in every way uh, to respond to God's grace, God's goodness. He doesn't have a faith he can even respond with, 
right? He's dead. His heart is one of stone. And then all of the language is God doing all the work. Now, and here, here's what I would ask folks to consider, and, and I'm sure and you, you can add to this, is that I think all of us, right? Uh, assuming we're speaking to Christians and not trolls, um, all of us who love Christ, we want to see Christ um, elevated. We want to see God elevated um, in, in, in his proper place, in God's proper place. We want to see man um, uh, below God, right? As a creature, as a created being. And so, sometimes we can just simply ask the question, um, is this elevating man above God? Um, or is this putting man as a creature below God? And some of these yeah. things that can be just answered with simple things like that. Now let's go. Let's talk about the fair question, right? Um, I, the fair question comes in, I, in my opinion, and uh, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. In my opinion, the fair question only exists because in our sinful nature we still want to be in control. Um, and we just don't like the idea that we're not. Um, it's emotionally driven question, right? Um, and it comes largely as, as from being influenced by our society, which is wicked and sinful. Yeah, we live in a society that is very man-centered. Um, our culture today likes to teach us that you're in charge of your own destiny. You make all the choices. You have the power to pursue your dreams and so on and so forth. And, and it gets to the point where once you're told that you actually can't do something, um, it sounds like it's unfair that, uh, that you're being robbed of something. Um, so that's, that's, I believe, where that cultural influence comes from. But yeah, the, the, the idea that we always have a choice in everything is, um, is one that, um, that, that man often places at the highest level, that how don't, don't you dare violate my free will. Well, I, I think you're going to run into problems either way, because if you really think that it's based upon man's free will, his ability to choose God, then why would anyone not choose God, right? Knowing, the, knowing what is at stake, knowing that you can have salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, you can be with God in all of eternity. I think that's going to be part of what you're going to wrestle with if you're going to make this all about free will. And then plus on top of that, now, what are you going to do about all those that never hear the gospel, right? Those um, who are in remote areas, um, they, they don't have a missionary that goes out there. They don't hear the gospel. And then even, you know, you think about when Jesus Christ came as, as, as a baby, you know, and uh, Herod started to kill all the firstborn in the area. And what did they have to do? They had to escape down to Egypt. Well, meanwhile, you had all these, all these uh, young boys being killed. Or in the days of Moses, similar thing. A lot of um, firstborn or, or young boys uh, being killed, thrown into the river and, and being executed. You know, what do you do about those people if you say that it's all about free will and free choice? Is it fair that they didn't receive it? Now, do we escape this problem by holding to a Calvinist framework? Well, you still have the same issue, but here's the thing. When you understand that it's by God's gracious choice, then you can account for that. You know, you, you, can, you can say, well, again, we all start on the same level. We all start dead in our trespasses and sins. We all deserve death. We all deserve eternal punishment. And if God had stopped there and never taken another step, he would be just and he would be righteous to do so. Um, by his grace, he chose to pardon some, but he didn't choose to pardon all. And we just understand that that's the nature of grace. He's going to yeah. show compassion on who he's going to show compassion. He's going to show mercy upon whom he's going to show mercy. 
Yeah, Romans chapter nine. Yep. You know, it's interesting when we talk about this one. This one is very hard for people, I, I think, because you know people don't like the idea that some go to hell, and and that again, I mean, and, and you're right on. That comes back to whether or not we understand total depravity, right? The reason people have a hard time with that is because they believe that people do not deserve hell. Just let that sink in. That is yeah. the only reason yeah. we believe it's not fair because we believe that humans do not deserve hell. Now, here's what's very interesting, and maybe this is a little bit of an apologetic here, but if someone were to communicate that, I might ask them, well, do you think that uh, the serial rapist deserves hell? And most assuredly, some would say yes. Do you yeah. deserve the, right. you know, the pedophile who uh, is in prison? Um, do you think he deserves hell? Is he bad enough? See, here's a here's a problem. Uh, the man becomes the arbiter of who is or isn't guilty of eternal damnation, and no one wants that responsibility. Um, right. So again, the implications of believing those things puts man right. elevates man. It, it's very interesting. At the end of all of these, um, you know, doctrinal positions, you either have God elevated or you have man elevated, and it's, it's either one or the other. Uh, and, and of course, you know, God is the one who must be uh, above man because He is Creator; we are creature. Um, you know, Romans nine, I think, uh, is is a great passage for this. I have actually um, heard of uh, of guys who, when they you know, there are Armenian in their positions, they get to Romans if they're going through it, and they just totally skip over chapter nine. Mm. Um, I just let me just say, if that is happening, that ought to be a big red flag for you. Um, if your doctrinal position requires you to skip over parts of the Bible, it's probably because there's some error in your doctrinal views. In fact, it is because there's some doctrine uh, error in your doctrinal views. But let me just read a part of this um, because, again, I, we, we don't want this to be our opinions. Uh, we want this to be scripture. So you referred to this other earlier. God says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, by the way, this is really in a similar backdrop, right, uh, to what we're talking yeah. about. This is the Apostle Paul um, writing to the, 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 the Romans, and he's basically answering the question, well, um, if we're guilty uh, in in God's in control of all this. God is sovereign. How can we be responsible for that, right? That's sort of the backdrop of this. How, how can we be responsible for being guilty? Um, and, it, I, and I love, Paul holds nothing back here, right? right. Um, he talks about uh, Esau and Jacob, and then he goes down, and let me just see, uh, turn to my Bible here. Yeah, okay, so let me start from 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? See, very same discussion we're having. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Powerful passage. Yeah. The apostle doesn't answer the question. Mm -hmm. He says, who are you to question God? 
we don't have to like the fact that people go to hell. We do have to acknowledge that because we all deserve hell, it's perfectly just that any of us go to hell. Yeah, and so I, the, the question that people are often tempted to ask, why didn't God elect everyone, overlooks the total depravity of man because the more relevant question, if you understand the total depravity of man, is not why didn't he save everyone, it's why did he save anyone. Anyone, right? yeah, right. absolutely. And, and, and just to follow up on that passage, which you just read from Romans chapter 9, and then you stopped at 22, but verse 23 says, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory um, upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Yeah. You know, this reminds me also of the book of Job. So here, Paul is anticipating that question of, okay, so why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? In other words, we're not responsible for our choices and our decisions and things that happen. And Paul's response back is, God is the creator and you're not. God has every right to do whatever it is he wants to do. And that's because Job, through most of the book, Though he recognizes he's not perfect, he continues to answer his friends who are bringing false accusations against him. He answers them and says, I am innocent of the things that you're accusing me of, and I just want my day in court before God that I can find out why these things happened to me, because as far as I know, I did nothing to deserve this. And when God finally opens up his mouth and speaks to Job, guess what? He doesn't answer Job why he did it. Instead, he reminds Job who the creator is. He reminds Job that he's the one that created all things in this world. And he starts asking those questions. Now, gird up your loins and you tell me, where were you yeah. when I did this, this, and this? So he's basically appealing to himself as the creator. And when Job realizes that, that's when at the end of it all, he says, I repent in ashes and dust. And I think he did that twice. The first time he did that, God said, well, I'm going to keep going. And then, uh, and then after that second time, um, then, uh, then God accepted his, uh, his repentance. Yeah. And at the end, I mean, he even says, you know, I, I cover my mouth with my hand, right? And, yep. and repent. Yep. Yeah. And, and Pharaoh, look, look at Pharaoh. God hardens yep. Pharaoh's heart. God makes the point that he raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his own glory for his people as a vessel of wrath. Yep. Um, yep. He's not the only one. I, I, I like R.C. Sproul's comment. He says, well, you, he says concerning will, you do have free will. It's just that God's will is more free than yours. Um, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and this, this one always comes back to the fair issue. And, and I think we've labored on that, but I'd like to just give one more modern day example, maybe a little perspective. You get stopped because you ran a red light, right? The police officer pulls you over. Um, two people get stopped, two different occasions. He does all the things he needs to do. That police officer has the power to do one or two things. He can write you a ticket, which you deserve because you ran the stoplight. And, or he can grant you mercy, right? Not giving you what you deserve. And he can let you go with a warning or without anything. No. To one, he gives the ticket. Would anyone say the police officer was unjust because he gave a ticket to the guy who ran the stoplight? No, no no reasonable person would say that he was perfectly just was he then unjust that he exercised mercy on another and instead of giving a ticket gave him a warning no both were in his power to do something 
and one, they both deserved the ticket. They were both wrong. And on one, he exercised his mercy. And on another, he exercised justice. Now, it's a human example, and so it falls short, right? But it is still, I think, a good picture of the fact that just what you said, it's the wrong question to ask, well, then, you know, why, why does God send anyone to hell? The right question is, why does God save anyone? And I think the Calvinist position ought to make us value our salvation in a far greater way because Mm -hmm. it forces us to say, you know what? There was absolutely nothing in me that deserved to be saved. And yet, just because God chose, not because of any merit, right? In other other words, I can't boast that I was a little bit better than my neighbor or I, I made the right decision. You know, I was intellectually astute enough to make a good decision for Christ. And if you are, you will too. No, I can't do that. In fact, I deserved hell and damnation and God in his mercy saved me for no other reason than it was just his good pleasure to do so. That is quite a different view than if you take the Arminian position. So last thoughts on that before we move on. Yeah, and, and even for evangelism, if we keep that attitude in mind that we are unworthy, then it should also prevent us from being selective, you know, or favoring who to give, who to evangelize and who not to, or to start making our own judgments as to who deserves to hear the gospel and who doesn't. You know, we, we recognize because no one was worthy, our, our job is now to proclaim the gospel to all because we don't know who's elect and who isn't. We don't know what God's timing is for those who are elect. And the Apostle Paul is a great example of this himself. When we talk about the fact that man does not choose, there was no point that the Apostle Paul was on the verge of choosing Jesus Christ. None. Not until he was blinded. Only when he was blinded by Jesus Christ and then asked who was speaking to him, um, then Jesus responded and and let him know. But yeah, that's um, we, we recognize that there are implications that come from total depravity, implications that affect how we live our life, how we witness, and then just keeping us humble in terms of thinking that anyone is beyond the reach of salvation or is not worthy of hearing the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you made a good point there. A a lot of guys will tend to go to, well, Calvinists don't evangelize. Well, that's not true, not true historically. Um, and, And you make a good point that because we don't know who God has and hasn't called to himself, we just preach the gospel to everybody, right? Um, and we trust God with the results. And, and I think that's another benefit of taking the biblical position of God is in absolute control, even of that, because now I don't have to go home sweating, worrying about whether I was good enough to convince someone to be saved. Right. Because if it is, in fact, man's decision then you could be culpable for just not being a good enough evangelist, right? You just didn't do a good enough job. If you would have done better, that person wouldn't spend eternity in hell. You know, I mean, these are some of the implications. Yeah, and that that could extend to the way we do church, the way we preach the word, right? Um, Paul says that uh, people are going to, there's going to come a time when people are going to look for teachers to tickle their own ears. But you, Timothy, you just continue to preach the word. And so we're told to just trust God to do things his way. But if it really is about our cleverness and our wisdom, then we can't but help but think that, hey, maybe there's a better way. 
maybe there's there's a more effective way to, to be able to reach them. But if we understand that God is sovereign over that process, then all we need to do is just be faithful to what God calls us to do, which I believe is most consistent with what scriptures want us to do. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 this is, you know, so we as we go through this, I hope guys are starting to see that actually your positions on these things make a huge difference in your Christian yeah. life. I mean, it really does impact everything. And, and 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 you and I and every other pastor out there, we if we just had if we were able to hear someone pray for or about the lost or see them evangelize, we could likely tell where they are on most of these issues, right? Yeah. Um, it it affects how you pray for people. It affects how you evangelize people. It affects um, your relationships in the church. It affects your view of just who God is um, and, and God's sovereignty, right? Um, and, and whether or not man is how highly exalted man is or isn't. Yeah. And so it, it really, it, it, I, I think over the years, we constantly get bombarded by so many other, you know, her- genuine, easy, recognizable heresies and things that we have to confront that we forget that the topic of Calvinism versus Arminianism is actually an extremely important topic. Um, it, it used to be big. And of course, now uh, as culture starts adopting moral issues and we're always having to fight that battle, we need to not forget this one. Right. Um, so th- those are some of the implications. So if, if you're not sure which side, we tried to give you a lot of um, scripture verses to consider. And, and again, you've got to ask, what's the implication of this belief? And if the implication is that God is in any way hindered by your belief, then that doctrine is not true. Uh, because God is absolutely sovereign. Uh, we mentioned Job. You see sovereign in Job. I, I mean, Job is a great example of God's absolute and total sovereignty because not even could Satan do what he would have wanted to do. Um, I mean, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, God put parameters around his involvement with Job at every turn, and he couldn't go beyond that. But not only that, he, you never even see him attempting to do that. You never see him arguing with God. Uh, God's word is absolute, and you see Satan functioning within the parameters God gives him. He's not the only one. Um, if we really had free will in the way that Arminianism teaches, uh, what do you do with Jonah? Yeah, yeah, Jonah also thought he was the captain of his own ship, and then he ended up with a whale of a tail um, to prove him wrong, right? Uh, you have Pharaoh. You, <laughs> you have the Apostle Paul. Like I said, I see what you did there. <laughs> a whale of a tail. Did you guys catch that? Okay, go ahead, go ahead. That's you a know, groaner. <laughs> yeah, you know I can tell dad jokes, uh, although I don't have children. Do you know why? Because why? I'm a faux pas. <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but y- you have the Apostle Paul. You have King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Um, You have all these uh, examples in Scripture that just constantly tell us that man is not in control of anything, anything. We have the freedom to make our choices, but we make our choices, and and ultimately, God directs our paths. Ultimately, God forms us as vessels for his own purposes, uh, and we glorify him no matter what that is, whether it's Pharaoh uh, or Esau or Jacob. And we... and, and we just have to submit to that. Well, brother, we're going to wrap up here. We're going to have to do a part two as we only got through two of the five. Um, <laughs> right. 
But I hope that this is helpful. Do you want to give us some last thoughts as, you know, people maybe take this podcast and are really considering yeah. where they need to land? Right, doctrinally. right, right. Yeah. And this is just, you know, take the full counsel of God. And what we have to do, we have parts of scripture that clearly lay, lays out the responsibility of men. And we have parts of scripture that clearly lays out the sovereignty of God. And the question is, how are you going to reconcile the two? Um, one has to be able to explain both positions. And if it only explains one, but ignores the other, then you have a problem. And I have no problem affirming the responsibility of man because man is absolutely responsible for the decisions that he makes. Yep. But I also know that in his depravity, he will always reject God. That out of his free will, he, he will, because his in his nature, he hates God, he turns away from God. That's Romans chapter 3, 10 through 12. Now, I, I will just add this last thing for those of you listening you may not agree with everything that we're saying and we're not saying that you need to have our position in order to be saved what you need to in order to be right. saved is to have put your faith into the lord jesus christ to repent and put your faith into the lord jesus christ as lord and savior that that is what is required for salvation that is the gospel that i proclaim that's the gospel that you proclaim yeah. i don't go through these five points and start going into a big lecture about sovereignty and depravity and all of that now, I do talk about depravity. I describe it in, in, the, in the sense that we're sinners and we will stand before God in judgment. <clears throat> but in terms of really, you know, kind of slicing this doctrine and then this theology and trying to figure out exactly where is God's role, where is man's role, um, this is what we believe is most consistent with Scripture. But I know very many good and godly people who are very sincere in, in their faith that don't understand this or don't agree with this. But it is worth really thinking through. And as you mentioned, there are real practical implications that come out of that, that I think make that lends itself well to following and obeying what the scriptures tell us. Yeah. Amen. It, you know, the goal, I think, for all of us who love Christ is to see Christ glorified. Right. Um, and yeah. so we, we want to align ourselves with scripture in such a way that God is glorified and that man is edified, um, and we don't mix those things up. So, uh, we hope that this podcast has been helpful. We're going to do a part two and uh, get through the the rest of the points. Um, and so, hope you'll consider these things. Go back and test everything that we've said uh, in Scripture. We've let you know what Arminianism teaches, and then we've given commentary on it. Um, and so, we we don't get to change what the doctrines teach. Um, mm -hmm. but, but you have to then decide which is more in line with Scripture and which isn't. So, we hope that you'll do that carefully and prayerfully, and that at the end, you'll align yourself with Scripture in such a way that um, God is glorified. So, until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.